0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Joel Johnson has spent nearly his entire professional career working in digital media. He went from being an anonymous online commenter to becoming an early editor of Gizmodo to eventually becoming editorial director of all of Gawker Media. Essentially, Joel was there from the very beginning when blogging began to go pro, as it were, and eventually evolve into the modern media landscape that we know today. In this episode, Joel recounts the history of blogging as a quote-unquote industry, Gawker Media especially, and gives us his own perspective on where digital media has been and where it might be going. Joel and I were introduced around the time he was launching The Nightlight, which we discuss later in this episode, and so we've known each other, at least tangentially, for a couple of years, but right before I hit record, we discovered that we were both born on exactly the same day of the same month of the same year. So as you'll hear in Media Res, we begin this episode by trading similar life experiences, coming of age with computers in the 1980s and 1990s. Please enjoy, Joel Johnson.
1: was one of the first ones that I actually saw in the theater, because I remember I didn't yeah. see, I don't think I saw Raiders, or uh, or, like, Jedi was the first one. That I remember being, I remember the experience. But right. Somehow, I think I must have seen the two previous ones because I
0: like knew what was going on. I think I on. saw Muppets in Manhattan or something <laughs> before that. But, yeah. but right, because you remember the speeder through the trees scene. Right, and I remember. Know, yeah. I
1: mean, there's so much. The, the funniest part of all of that from that set of pop culture was about, I don't know, it was probably eight or nine years ago now, and I was sitting at home one day, and I was like, I think I'm going to watch Aliens again. And I turned on Aliens, and I, like, knew every single line of Aliens, mm-hmm. yeah. but I realized I'd never actually seen it. Yeah. Like, my whole life, I'd just been steeped in what Aliens was, who the characters were, what the, all right. their catch, catchphrases were, and then, but I just realized, like, I've never actually seen this, and it was a, it was the weirdest, like, psychedelic experience, because it was, like, I know this, but I also know that yeah. all of these images are when moving are you know new what, to me. I, I,
0: embarrassingly, like I've seen Aliens a thousand times, I've yeah. never seen Alien. Oh, really? All the way through. I mean, I've seen bits and pieces, but yeah. I probably have that same experience. Well, <laughs> yeah. I know what's coming now. Yeah. I, you know, even though I haven't seen it, but um, I'm just—we're we're already started. So, cool. um, Joel Johnson, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. We just discovered that you and I were born on the same day.
1: It's true, we're blood brothers, exactly with time.
0: Well, Aquarian blood (laughs) brothers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so actually, that'll help me lead into. We must have a similar computing history background, like. Could be. Were you a Mac kid or PC I, all the way Absolutely not a Mac kid. Right, Hated neither was Macs. I.
1: Neither was I. Uh, like, was very vehemently a PC kid. Because of the games. Because of the games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually, my first machines, uh, my grandfather made uh, accessories for TRS-80s for the Radio Shack Tandy, like, uh, home computers. So those were the very first machines I ever used. And he had, like, everything. He had, you know, TRS, Model 1, 2, 3, 4, the portable, whatever. Um, so I was very into those, but I was probably a little bit young, uh, except to just like punch in a few lines of code that he would tell me, uh, to do. And the games were terrible. Uh, and then, yeah, I remember getting our first, uh, we got, we got a two eighty six uh, PC clone that like, that was, I, I kept that well into the, like almost, I guess Pentium was my next one after that. So I kept that one for probably four years. And I was like, Wing Commander right. and, and Doom and like all of these original and tons of uh BBS time and like mm-hmm. calling into all sorts of places so yeah hardcore hardcore PC kid for sure
0: and then I've said this before on the show but then you, you it gets reinforced every time you go to Babbage's and there's one tiny little shelf for Mac games yeah and the whole rest of the store is PC games so
1: I actually I worked in a software cetera when I was about 18 and Kirk Hammett the guitarist for Metallica mm-hmm. came in yeah and I was like
0: hell yes like
1: Metallica, like, you're coming into my store. And, and like, this is a totally small store. Nobody was ever in it. And he walked up, and he was like, do you know any of the gains for Mac? And I was like, oh, man, Metallica's
0: fallen. <laughs> like, I thought they were cool, but now I'm not sure anymore. Which was missed and a couple other things. Yeah, right? no, I couldn't help him. Um, so you mentioned BBSs, too. So was that your first online experience stuff, or was there... A yeah, um, or I
1: remember... Um, my uh, stepfather uh, was very like kind of technical nerdy guy too, and he wrote a war dialer when we lived in Springfield, Missouri. Um, and that was my first experience with anything even vaguely illicit hacky.
0: <laughs> Explain a war dialer cause right that, right. Uh... So
1: back in the day, uh, the only way that you could get onto BBS's, which were you know bulletin board systems that you used uh, analog to digital modems uh, to contact, You would just have to know what the phone number was. You're just calling one computer with a phone number is calling another computer with a phone number, and uh, a lot of times back in the day, uh, you didn't know where, you didn't know what that list of phone numbers were. You didn't know which computers were attacked to where. There were really very few directory services, and if there were, they were literally text files that just said here's a number, here's a number. So what you could do is you could write a script, um, and I think this was just a auto like a like a batch file, like a DOS batch file. Uh, that would uh, walk down and call every single number in order and then see if it got a modem handshake or not. And if it did, it would you know, put a little X next to it and say, yep, that sounds like a modem to me. And so you leave that running for a few days mm-hmm. and then you'll have a good set within your, uh, not the area code, but whatever the next three, I can't remember what those are called, but you could run through that 10,000 numbers and you would have a good sense of like, okay, these are maybe bulletin boards that I can call into and then you go back and you dial into each one. And a lot of times you would just get that, like, one prompt that you would get. You would get a protocol handshake and you would get a prompt and you're like, okay, what is this? It's not a public BBS. Like, how do I get into this? And sit there and type passwords all day and try to hack into something, you know, hack in big air quotes. But, yeah, war dialing was back in the, like, in the first few years of it, that was a lot of times how I had found the initial bulletin boards that I hung out on.
0: This is a nerd shot in the dark, but Trade Wars?
1: Oh, hell yeah, Trade Wars. Yeah, I I lost a summer to Trade Wars. So did I. Well, many summers, yeah. I I have a very distinct memory. I probably was about 11 or 12 where uh, I had spent probably two or three months playing Trade Wars on this BBS, on a one-line BBS where only one computer could connect Mm -hmm. to it at a time. And I even... uh, went to other people's houses and, and drug my giant PC with me so that I could call from their phone lines to the BBS to get another account because it always did, like, a callback to authorize, like, or to verify that, you know, one, one account, one person. So I had this, like, 10-person group uh, team in Trade Wars. that was all me right. that I would just dial in, sequence, and, right, like, log right. in with the new account. And I spent two or three months doing that. And then this one dick, like... Came in one night and blew up my whole system and all of my fighters and everything that I had. And I remember, I remember walking into our backyard like under a starry sky and just crying, like just bawling. (laughs) It's like I don't know what to do.
0: I because we I spent a whole summer building up a a thing right where we um, my friends and I double crossed the guy. Oh, nice. Where so like somehow we convinced him we were on the same team, we were working together, and like we. Went in one night and, like, changed whatever so that the photon cannons would shoot at his ship. When he right, came right, right. Because it was one of those uh, dead-end yeah, systems where you where, hide your planet. Where you hide your planet, right.
1: The Trade Wars 2002, um, I mean, I feel like it gets some credit. It was maybe a proportionate amount of credit, but it's totally the proto-EVE. Like, it mm-hmm. was a very same kind of space trade, malicious yeah, yeah. game like EVE. And then it also had, and I think it was in the 2002 version, uh, which did not come out in 2002. Right. That was like a futuristic date when they right, did it. Right, right. Uh, The 2002 version had a bunch of ANSI uh, graphics that like maybe only like eight or nine pages of it, like when you logged into a space station or whatever. And I remember that being actually very influential too, because I was always fascinated with computer graphics and just even seeing that like kind of. High quality ANSI art that could mm. come down a modem pipe. I always thought that was super, super cool.
0: So, what about um, getting into online communities like when the web comes around? Yeah, towards the end of high school.
1: So, you know, I, I, I BBSs were definitely the beginning of it. I like, yeah. talked to a few people here and there. Never was like, I think I had an email account that did some relays uh, out to the actual internet, but I, I honestly didn't understand what the internet was for mm. a long time. Like, after the, a long time after I'd even been on the internet. Do
0: you know, I found... The, the way I discovered it was, there was a special edition of the Utney Reader. Okay. Where they literally had an issue where they were like, this is what the internet is. And it broke down, like, you know, news groups and, like, IRC and stuff like that. And, like, the web was just beginning then. Mm-hmm. So then it was the first thing that, like, listed websites.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't understand, like... I didn't understand how to put this. Like technically, it made sense, but when I first discovered the internet was, uh, you know, sometime in the early '90s, mm-hmm. and there was already enough hyperbolic writing about it that, as a kid, it really confused the hell out of me hmm. about what it actually was, because you would read things, it was right around the time that like Wired was starting to come out. Um, I I didn't think I knew Mondo at the time because it wasn't sold at my local gas station, but Wired was. Um, And like you read all these heady West Coast, like it's going to change this and it's going to change that. And, you know, at a time where I'm also learning about drugs and girls and Mm -hmm. all of these other things, Mm -hmm. I I just, it really took me, honestly, like probably a year of messing around on the internet for it to even click where it's like, oh, this is just a computer network. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, I know what networks are. And, I I mean, it's just one of those weird blind spots you have when you're a kid where you look back on it now and it's so obvious what it was, but because it was written in this portentous, pretentious tone, you're like, I I must not be understanding all of this. It seems like it's just computers talking to each other, but somebody told me it's going to change the world and I don't get it. So. So yeah, that was my first experience, was BBS's, and then I actually took a quick detour into Prodigy, which was the dial-up, like, kind of bullet, it was like AOL competitor at the time. That was my main
0: one, too. You and I are crazy. Yeah, we're, like, really lined up. I did um, Star Trek um, role-playing games on the Prodigy message boards. I
1: ran, I was part of a wing commander role-playing group in their message boards that had, like, all these really weird rules, and you had to, like... I think you only had so many posts that you could write Mm -hmm. at a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And Prodigy was a really cool technology because it was all vector graphic based and uh, had a lot of potential. But again, it was one of those things that I think was kind of ruined by the fact that the the content was bad. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those first internet portals or even captive portals uh, that they were trying to simulate the greater internet experience... The content was always so safe and so boring and well, generic and then, that it wasn't compelling.
0: I don't know if you are aware of this, but then they ran into... I remember when everyone fled Prodigy for AOL, was, one of the main things was they started charging $0.25 cents an email. Right. But then also, there was this period of time where they were trying to police content, even the email back and forth between users. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. And so I've read internal prodigy people accounts of like, that's insane. Like, why were we trying to, you know, but it was that sort of attitude, whereas AOL, once it starts to take off, you can go in a chat room and, and, you know, do crazy, dirty sex chat all the time. They don't give a shit. Yeah. You know, so that was basically...
1: The only other memory I have of prodigy, uh, which I spent maybe a good year on that, uh, and was certainly my first, like, kind of community, online community thing... I I got a free t-shirt for signing up for Prodigy that was just this like thin white cotton t-shirt that had the Prodigy logo on it, which was just the word Prodigy with a star. And I was a precocious little twat uh, growing up and I wore that to school like in seventh grade every every other day. (laughs) And all these kids would be like, Oh, you think you're so smart, huh? And i I'd be like, no, you think you're so smart. This is actually a computer network, like that's the name. Just the fact that I'm also a prodigy is a coincidence. <laughs> and it's like, which is why it explains a lot of why seventh and eighth grade were really terrible because I was such a little little jerk.
0: Well, what I'm what I'm feeling my way towards here is I feel like, especially I'm gonna use a crazy term, but this, the first generation of people to become professional bloggers, mm-hmm. of which you're in this cohort. I feel like you came up organically through web communities and like, so what, what was the thing that started to get you to be a commenter and be like, all right, I'm, I'm living my life online. Um,
1: So would not to like give you my whole life story, but just for context, like I, I through all my teen years, uh, you know, was a typical nineties, uh, dork, like, you know, liked Dungeons and Dragons and. Japanese race cars and, you know, all that kind of normal stuff. But I thought my whole life, literally my whole life since I was, is since I was conscious, I had been told by people in my family and also, uh, you know, anybody around me that I was going to go, quote, into computers, right? Mm. Uh, so my whole life, because I was always on my computer, I was always like playing video games or doing something with it. And so in my life, you know, I, I and I dropped out of high school when I was, Sophomore year or something like that, and in the back of my head, I'm always like, "Oh, well, it doesn't matter because I'm going to be in the computer. like mm. I'm going to be a computer programmer of some stripe, and I'm going to like, you know, do all of this stuff." Well, lo and behold, uh, I was not very—I'm not a very good computer programmer. Uh, I don't like the work that much at all, um, and you know, found out. And you and I being ex- literally the same age, we are in a really weird. Uh, age where we were graduating high school or first entering the workforce right when the first internet bubble was collapsing. So I had all these friends and people that I'd made online uh, who worked in the valley, like worked all around for the telcos and the, you know, Bell System companies doing Unix work and all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, that's what I'm going to do too. And then the the day that I went out to go start trying to find those jobs, the entire market collapsed for like two years.
0: I think I've told this story on the show before. I remember coming up to New York for the first time and a bunch of friends working for .com era, uh, Webstakes was one, whatever, and um, them literally saying to me, you're too late. Yeah. They just told us last week we have to be profitable and that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the jig is up, essentially. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, you know, in my teenage uh, years, or, you know, or late teens, early 20s, I'm like, well, I missed it. and. You know, I got a job as a a network administrator administrator for a while and, like, ran some websites on Windows boxes, and it was terrible. I hated it. And so, you know, I ended up moving to New York in, like, 2003, I think. Why? Uh, Because I was... I wanted to get out of Kansas City. It was, like, a real sleepy town, and... um, and I always loved New York. I uh, had a lot of friends here, and I, you know, just typical New York reasons, right, like I right. want to try it. But I moved here under the anticipation that I was going to go to art school, uh-huh. and like that I was going to be some sort of artist. Um, and but in that interregnum between you know realizing that wait I'm not going to step into a hundred thousand dollar a year job like building HTML websites uh, into you know moving to New York, I had spent tons of time online in a lot largely like gaming communities mm. uh something awful was actually come out had come out of kansas city which i was never like a big something awful guy but like it was it was in the periphery uh we had started a website called uh, caseygeek.com which was supposed to be like just kind of like a forum news yeah. site which was actually a, a proto blog that uh we did news and in roundups and all of that stuff uh you know as soon as anybody else, like we were definitely in the in the mix, or could have been if we would have known what we were doing, and so when you I just got to stick
0: with it yeah
1: right. we did stick with it for a while. I think the thing that the reason that didn't work is because at the time, all of those roundup sites um, like there was one called uh, Blues News for PC gaming yeah. that I remember like there were certain sites that were very compelling to me to visit because I was from a certain point, and continue to be uh, like addicted to the internet, right? And so that experience of uh, having a site to check every ten minutes or every thirty minutes or every hour that had a little new nugget of news mm-hmm. for for the children <laughs> listening, like that did that was a really odd, rare thing. Like mm-hmm. in the early days of the internet people were building archives, they were building things that, pages that would last forever, like here is my collected wisdom and this is my page about model trains and here's everything I know about model trains done. Nobody was going, this is my model news or model train news page where every day I'm going to collect and and aggregate all this content. Right. Right. So we were one of the first, um, and it came out of the kind of PC gaming, online gaming world, but we were and not that big and not that influential. I don't want to overstate it, but we, we kind of sensed that there was something there, but we didn't have the audience and we certainly didn't know how to monetize it.
0: Right. But I, I, we might come back to this point, but I think the early days of blogging more than almost anything else I've seen where if you were just there first and planted your flag and stuck with it, Mm -hmm. eventually within like five years, you were like an old hand and you had, you had the audience. So I, we might come back to that idea. Well, and there's something,
1: so there, there's a, a, you know, <laughs> progression here, whether it sounds like it or not. So I, I had come to New York was doing all this like stuff. And I was doing like Photoshop, Photoshop work in the fashion industry and, uh, just real low level stuff. And, um, Gizmodo had already launched and Gizmodo, I know had launched before I even moved to New York. Cause I remember reading it probably at least a year before I moved to New York. And Gizmodo was very compelling to me because it was a gadget site, which, you know, at the time didn't exist. It was very underserved um, as far as finding that stuff. And, uh, and then the format was relatively new as well. And so I I found uh, Nick Denton's uh, instant message handle, his AOL handle, and like uh, IM'd him and was like, Hey, like you don't know me from Adam. Uh, really like this Gizmodo site. Why don't you have one for video games? Mm. And uh, he was like, "Why are you eye-aiming me?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, but also was f- fairly receptive and was like, uh, "You know, send me an email with like what your experience is, where you come from." Well, you know, that's where my online gaming internet uh, like something awful forum troll Mm -hmm. background intersected with what was happening in media at -hmm. the time, which was this rise of blogging. And so, you know, it turns out that I was a subject matter expert about all of this stuff that actually there weren't that many people that could string a sentence together Mm. knew about. And so I ended up, uh, the the, the progression is not that interesting, but he basically was like, yeah, we want to do a video game site someday. We're not sure when. Thanks for writing. Um, and then literally like a week later um, Pete Rojas quit and he was in a lurch and he was like do you know anything about gadgets and I was like you bet I sure do like meanwhile I have like no idea what the difference between CDMA and TDA is and all of this stuff but I knew I could fake it you're doing that wrong I'm putting on it. we're in a cold ass room in this meeting room, and I got to put on a sweater because I'm old.
0: But as a as a good host, I provided you with a you jacket, did, yes. with a,
1: with only a certain amount of dog and cat hair all over. <laughs> right, yeah. But that's fine; keeps it warmer. Um, so you know, it was a real out of uh, nowhere thing. And I, and I actually think what you said earlier is right. Where, and if you if you picked a topic and you created a schedule that people could rely on, and you did it every day, like it would show up. People would show up. And, uh, you know, my initial experiences at Gizmodo, um, I'd written a lot of stuff online. It was kind of mostly just forum posts and jokey things. But I knew how to write, and I'm not dumb. Like, I have basic grammar in place and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, come to find out, uh, as long as I was putting the content up every day, it kind of didn't matter what I wrote. And, you know, I grew Gizmodo to be way, way bigger than it had ever been uh, when Pete had done it. But Pete also went and started in gadget, and it was growing at the same rate, if not faster, at the same time. So it's like, it, I, I added some new elements in the fact that, like, I added jokes and was, like, treating... I, I took the tone in a different direction than anybody had ever done before. But mostly, I think I was really successful at that, because I was there, and I did the work, and I showed up. And, like, anybody else could have done that work if they were still covering Gadgets, which turns out is like one of the most popular things for nerds to read about right on the internet
0: all right i'm gonna i'm gonna have you stop and we're gonna back up and hit a hit a couple points here i'm not asking you to give me the the origin story of gawker but from what you understand um from what i've read it almost seems like that nick was gonna do he was gonna do technology like Kinja mm-hmm. was gonna be something a technology company and then the, the idea to do gawker and start these blogs sort of was a accidental secondary thing? I mean, I think the
1: I think the the easiest way to describe it is that the core business was going to be uh, Kinja, which was essentially an RSS a web-based RSS reader
0: or sort of like a scraper also maybe like to bring in content.
1: It had other parts. Yeah, okay, I don't yeah. I don't know exactly because yeah. it, it had changed, you know, over its lifetime. But at the beginning of the I Essentially, Nick had the I think right idea uh, to say, okay, all this blog stuff is happening. Movable type is filling the internet up with RSS feeds. There's not one good RSS reader that's easy for people to use and and has like nice sharing tools and all of this stuff. We'll I'll create Kinja. and then the sites, the brands that uh, came out of that Gizmodo, then Gawker, and I can't remember what was third. Um, I think those were almost like proof of concepts that blogs could make money. You know, it because if you're gonna create a business around aggregating blog content, you kinda need to get a bunch of people creating blog content. So if you create one or two yourself and figure out like how the advertising will work on there, uh, normalize the the form, then more people will be likely to, you know, create content so that you can use in your readers.
0: Sort of just dog fooding the medium itself. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: And so you know what happened in, in reality is over the course of a couple of years, Kinja took forever to come together and launch, which you know probably has is if if my experience is any guide is because you know Nick is a terrible uh, product manager, and uh, also in the interim, like Gizmodo and Gawker and a lot of these sites started to get some traction. Um, I remember like maybe two or three weeks after I started, we'd gotten the first Microsoft ad on the site. And uh, then I put up a, a, or I linked to some weird German bicycle at a dildo that, were, like, came through the seat. And, you know, I didn't even embed it on the site. I was just, like, not safe for work, but if you want to see this crazy thing, like, here it is. And Microsoft immediately, like, pulled all of their advertising, was like, oh, well, you know, we can't be associated with any of this stuff. But while that was happening, you know, it, we just kept growing and growing and growing. And a year later, like, I'm interviewing Bill Gates. Like, that. there was just a time there where people went, what are blogs? Wait, I love blogs. Wait, maybe this is the hot new thing. And over the course of really just, yeah, a couple of years, it just went from nothing into right. this giant, well, relatively right, giant right, right.
0: thing. We're going to return to that idea, actually. Um, but you mentioned, you know, the idea that gadget blogging... Seems to be one of the more evergreen, more popular yeah. niches for this sort of thing. Do you know the origin story of you know saying, okay, let's try a gadget blog? I mean, I don't know how apocryphal or true this
1: is, but uh, Nick always explained Gizmodo as being the, a clone of the, uh, what is it, wanted section inside of the, the front of book section inside of uh, Wired magazine. Okay, yeah. Um, and then they just made that. Uh, and instead of having all of the think pieces and everything else with it, it was just like, it's a catalog. It's like, here's the thing. Here's what you need to know about it. Maybe it's some news that's like, here's a firmware update or, or whatever. Um, there, there were some antecedents of that. Obviously, Mossberg had, uh, although he, he was more like a column, but, you know, he was at least talking about personal technology. Um, there's a guy that doesn't get nearly enough credit, in my opinion, named Lloyd Case, uh, who used to work for PC Magazine. Mm-hmm. It was kind of floated around within the Ziff Davis world, uh, did a site called Extreme Tech a few years later. Uh, but Lloyd was a baby when I, or, or he was a kid when I was a baby. Uh, but I remember reading PC magazines because the, the big boring PC, PC magazines would have a little one pager from Lloyd Case that would be, here's all the gadgets, and then, you know, sometimes those gadgets would be, like, right. an amazing plug-in SCSI card or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. you know, even as a kid, I was always, like, I don't care about, you know, AS400s and, you know, how to optimize your tape storage on mainframes. Like, I care about PCs. I care about things that Sony makes that are, like, cool little gadgets. And I care, like, that's what i because that's the stuff that's accessible to me. Like, I can actually get it. So I think Nick's idea, or maybe Pete's idea, I don't, I don't know, uh, was like, we'll just take that little piece of it out. And then that ended up setting up a template uh, for a lot of the, the enthusiast and product blogs that we did afterwards. Like I did go on to, I, did, I wasn't the first editor, but I hired the first editors for like Kotaku and all, all that stuff. Which is a video game blog. Which is a video game right. blog. And so like as we went forward, the mo- it was already set in place of kind of like what a news blog is. And the reason gadget blogs have remained evergreen is so obvious. And now that like I've come through the other side and I like, consider myself pretty well-versed in media and the media business and all of that stuff, uh, technology blogs do well because there are still a shitload of nerds on the internet and there are still tons of tech companies that have advertising dollars that want to get to those nerds. So the funniest thing about tech blogging is that it kind of, I don't think it, I don't think it really killed a lot of the tech uh, magazines or publications. Like I feel like that was more just a symptom of the internet at large. But it just took the the core of the advertising dollars, like the really easy, sweet money, out of that, and just drew a tap right out of that into operations that maybe only took two or three people to run. Mm-hmm. And that's why you still have any sort of uh, you know like uh, they go out to start the ringer, which is the you know a new. Uh, Uh, Bill Simmons. Yeah, like, I I don't know what to call it, though. It's like publication. Right. And it's like, and they're like, oh, and by the way, we're doing technology content, too. And whatever, I'm sure it's fine. Like, I'm not dissing the quality of the content. But from a business perspective, it's because that is always the number one most lucrative pipeline of advertising dollars Hmm. is technology stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, automotive is, like, kind of a close second, depending on where you're at. But, uh, yeah. And so it just works. And turns out there was, like, a huge audience for it. We were doubling our traffic like every month or every two months like just I promise
0: we're going to get to how you turned it into the greatest gadget blog of all time but (laughs) that is how I describe it. We (laughs) alighted over I just want to get this story a little bit. You you reach out to Nick Denton you say I wanted why don't you do a, a video game blog. Right. At some point Pete steps down or is fired or whatever leaves. I mean
1: I think he stepped down to because he didn't own as much right. of Gizmodo as he wanted, and so Kalikanis was like promised him the the world with the Spengole <laughs>
0: touch that Kalikanis has. So what's the what's the story in between here? Had you stayed in touch with Denton? Had you no? It, but
1: that that window was only like literally a week, maybe a week and a half. So like basically, just some kid, some random ass kid, said, "I know about I know how to write on the internet." Uh-huh. Uh, Mr. Fancy media guy, uh, who lives in New York and has a British accent and has published a book was like, that's great kid. Like, you know, buzz off. And then a week and a half later finds himself in a lurch where he's like, Oh shit, I got to find somebody to run this website. Cause my, my guy left. Right. And for the first three months, every week or every two weeks, they would be like,
0: yeah, this is going to be your last week. Like, we're gonna—we've got somebody lined up. So you were literally just triage, just yeah, cut, a warm body brought in
1: just to keep the heartbeat going, just to write anything.
0: All right, let's think of this from your angle, though. How do you know how to like? You you step in, you start to do this, or, like. So I had technically like
1: blogged before, mm-hmm. even though I we didn't call it blogging. I didn't know what it was, uh, so I knew. Uh, I knew how to like, be pithy and write little short uh, pieces. You knew the voice
0: uh, and like, the kind of the... Well, and
1: the voice, I'll tell you, the voice, I 100% started by stealing the voice of uh, Old Man Murray, which was a, a video game website, the first kind of humorous video game website and still a huge influence to me. Uh, one of the writers, uh, they they both worked at Valve now, but Eric Wolpaw uh, went on to, and Chet as well, his partner, like uh, did a lot of the writing in Portal. like Incredibly mm-hmm. funny, incredibly, like kind of the first meta writers mm-hmm. that I had experienced in a lot of this enthusiast stuff. But nobody was doing that in tech. That was all like a gaming culture thing. And so for the first few months, for sure, I just stole that <laughs> form and that sense of humor and applied it to technology. Because it worked. And then the other person, there are two other people that actually really helped me out. Uh, there was a guy named Brendan Kerner, who is still a writer, still uh, doing some really awesome books and reporting, uh, who was in a uh, Nick's friend or whatever. And he kind of had given me some good advice about a lot of stuff and was, was holding my hand through it. And then on a daily basis, uh, Corey Sika was at Gawker.com, And Corey, God bless him like was the supportive mothering figure (laughs) that I needed uh, when Denton was constantly going like, you know, we're going to replace you any moment now. Like don't get too comfortable. And Corey was like, here's what adverbs are. Like here's how
0: to make this better. Corey seems to have played that role for a lot of people. Oh yeah, Yeah. for
1: sure. Like Corey is the, Corey was the daddy for a, for a lot of us. I shouldn't say it like that. All creepy. Corey was the very sexy daddy (laughs) for all of us. Uh, you yeah. know, he, he, did, the... he was very influential and very generous, and and like that's the. I mean, I Corey's brilliant. Uh, like he's he's can be when he wants to get off his ass, be a genius. Uh, <laughs> but like he, I think as important or more important is he's just incredibly generous and real and like a great editor and really good on feedback. But he he isn't out there to try to one up you on your on your writing. And so he was, and we only. Honestly, like, he only kind of mentored me or whatever for the first couple of weeks just to make sure I wasn't going to go off the rails and, you know, start putting up Mein Kampf post or whatever.
0: So, okay, but we're reading between the lines by the omissions here. So are you ever, even when it, it becomes official, you're, you're on board, do you ever get, like, okay, this is what we're about. This is, the, this is the angle we're taking. This is our voice. This is our mission statement. Are you ever given anything, like like, this is what we do?
1: No, not really. I mean, Denton would occasionally like show up on instant messenger and be like, I like this. I don't like that. Uh, But, and, and I mean, let's like to, or to be clear in the first, those first few months before I actually got hired, you know, to take over full time, like Denton hated what I was writing because he didn't like the sense of humor. He's never had the same sense of humor that I have. Uh, he thought all the jokes were weird. He had all of his like, you know, stuffy dipshit friends were like, What is going on? Like the monocles are popping out and they're like, you know, this person put a dick joke in my palm trio post. Like, how could this possibly work? And so, you know, Nick of course is like very susceptible to people, you know, saying like, you know, worrying about things. And honestly, if it wasn't for Corey going like it's fine. Like, these are funny. I'm laughing at these. I get what you're doing. Like, just go with it. Uh, I probably would have, uh, like, I keep trying to say anodytes, but I don't know if that works for anodyne. But I, I would have stripped a lot of the humor out of, uh, out of what I had done. But by the time uh, it came on, uh, or that I came on full time, I, I just kind of had to figure it out. And I was spending my entire life working on that website. Like I literally woke up at 6 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. so that I could get a post up. I, would, I was living in a loft in Dumbo, actually literally like three buildings away from where we're at now. And uh, I would wake up, I would start typing <laughs> whether I knew what I was saying or not and just start making content. And I would do that until I went to sleep and I would usually go to sleep at like midnight or one o'clock and I did that for about a year completely by myself.
0: Okay, do you have um, uh, marching orders in terms of you have to hit a certain number of posts per day? Uh, no, but I always
1: completely eclipse whatever post count that you would get. When okay. I first started, I think we got paid 12 bucks a post. Actually, I think when I started, we got paid eight bucks a post. But I was doing. I think on average probably about 25 posts a day, and uh, some days like 30 or 40 posts a day. Uh, it was just constant. And to be clear, like a post sometimes might only be like three or four sentences, and it a wasn't, link or something, and yeah. a photo, and you know yeah. whatever. But and I had a machine, right? Like I I, had a, I you know go into Photoshop, prep my image, put my stuff up. Like do half the time I wouldn't even proofread it. I would proofread it after I hit save, because movable Type in was really iffy about actually working. And so a lot of times I just wanted to make sure that it got saved and published before I even worried about typos or anything. And I was just going for speed. And then, uh, at the same time, uh, Pete had started in gadget with a budget and a staff. And I think they had like four or five guys like working on all of this stuff. And I kept saying to, to Denton, like, I think I need help. Like, mm. I'm, I am I, was, like, not able to sleep at night. And my body hurt. And, like, I was, like, like my neck. It was the first time in my life I ever had, like, neck and spine problems because I was just so hunched up the whole time. But I loved it. And it was so awesome to get, like, emails from people that are, like, I love your writing. Like, this is great. Like, I got a lot of adoration for, for work that I had, you know, I guess everybody craves, but I didn't know how much I had craved it. So it was... Work, you know, best of times worst of times but um I, there was not a lot of direction the direction was just go like just get everything because and, this
0: is also before they start paying attention to like page views and like well that, that this post got this amount of attention in that yeah there
1: wasn't that much granularity on a per post or subject matter basis i think the only editorial feedback i ever got consistently, consistently from nick was like uh, we need more of those very interesting Akihabara Japanese-only gadgets, and it's like, well, I can't make more of those exist. <laughs> like, if I'm you know, like, I promise you, every time something weird comes out from a
0: Japanese company,
1: Either like I'm on it.
0: Fly me to Japan, and maybe I can find. <laughs>
1: right, which actually did end up happening a few years later, and I finally went to Akihabara the first time, and was like, this is very culturally interesting, but there's not a lot of cool gadgets here. Mm. This is, you know, that moment is gone. But, uh, yeah, I did that. Uh, I just, that's, it was, I just went, I just went constantly, didn't have any vacation. I just like ran that whole stupid website and we didn't worry about page views or subject tuning or any of that stuff because we were growing so fast that, I mean, I remember the first time we had a hundred thousand uniques in a month and it was like a big deal because I don't know, uh, Cause there were other things like Instapundent and there were some other sites that were fairly, other bloggers that were fairly big, but I would, I would argue that, or I wouldn't be surprised. I would say if Gizmodo and Gadget, especially, uh, in that period of time, whatever it would have been, 2005,
0: 2006. Yeah. We haven't even framed that. Right. Yeah. I yeah. Think,
1: actually it was probably more like 2004, 2005, yeah. something like yeah. that. Uh, we could have been the biggest blogs that existed, mm-hmm. uh, as far as things that are blogs not necessarily biggest online publications at really. that
0: point what was the biggest in the Gawker stable
1: I mean Gizmodo became the biggest very quickly Okay. Uh, while, while I was there but again I think that was more of a timing thing like I mean Pete and I just to put it all out on the table like Pete and I have never liked each other and never really gotten along mm-hmm. uh, but like Uh, I have also been a real dick to him in the past about being like, well, you started it, but I perfected it. And it's like, yeah, well maybe, but I also now in, see, I still did it. (laughs) Right. Maybe that's true. Uh, I mean, whatever. I'm a funnier writer than Pete and always have been, but Pete got in there before I did and was aware of the opportunity for it and also made a lot more money off of the whole endeavor than I ever did. So so good on you. Well, then
0: uh, this is the opportunity now. So when um, when you start to get this competition in the space, you know when he yeah. launches um, and uh, they have more money and they have more people and it's just you. So it, it, describe for me, <laughs> describe for me that sort of thing, and, and then take us to how you, you triumphed. Oh, did I triumph? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's set this
1: story up for a happy ending. Um, I I just went nuts. Uh, for about a year, year and a half. Didn't take any time off. Eventually, I got a couple of interns uh, that I don't even think were paid interns that some of them did better than others. Um, Does Engadget try to do something different than what you're doing? Or are you guys just hitting the same? You know, know, they were more professional in tone. Um, They ended up doing a lot more stuff. They were also kind of more plugged into the PR world sooner than I was I I definitely came from a hyper skeptical sort of uh screw the media uh screw you know all of this big system man kind of vibe and so when PR people started reaching out to me of course my first instinct is to like clown them or make fun of them or you know whatever and I think uh I think Pete and company were a lot smarter about uh, building those relationships. Also, Calacanis, and in in, during a lot of this time, you know, was feuding with Nick, doing everything he could do to take down Nick, including like trying to call me a sellout and besmirch my name in public and private and all of this stuff. And so, I mean, it it was super stressful at the time. I look back at it now, and I'm like, it was kind of awesome because I was just thrust into the middle of this. New York media, it's a good online world. media war, you know? Like, yeah, which I had no framework at all, and also really felt like, okay, this dot com era stuff that I missed when I was 18, now that I'm 26 or whatever, I, you know, ignore the dates, but like now that I'm in my mid 20s, I'm in the middle of all this stuff. And I remember I started getting like TV hits for news uh, stories and, you know, would be on national television and stuff, and all of my friends were like, "What is going on? Like, what is this job you have? Like, it seemed like some little dumb thing." And that all was like within a year, year and a half period. But I went on vacation. Uh, Lockhart had come on. Lockhart Steel had come on. I remember, um, and uh, and I was start, and even in that year and a half period of time, I remember going from like a per post thing to I think maybe salaried. Or at least there was a bonus system in place. Like I was making pretty good money uh, by, the, by the time it was all done. But I finally got a chance to go on a vacation. And I remember I went uh, scuba diving somewhere in the Bahamas. And I came back. I was there for like maybe two days out of a week-long trip. And I just, I just like kind of collapsed mentally. I was like, I can't. I had a panic attack. I was like, I can't go back and do this. Like I can't do it. I can't. I've, I've like been insane for a year and a half. I can't go back to it. And so I went back to New York and set uh Lockhart and Nick down and was just like, look, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't be the only person that runs this thing. It's just too much. It's just taking, it's making me insane. And, uh, you know, they were, they were pretty generous about it. And, uh, like I helped them find a replacement. Um, and, uh, and that was that. That was kind of the end of that era. And then I don't even know what I did after that. I don't know if that was when I was going to go start Dethroner or whatever. it was. Wired work. maybe
0: immediately after that? I think that is what
1: happened. I think I went to... No, like that might have... So if I sound confused, the reason I'm confused is that I've worked at Gawker or had worked at Gawker four separate times, I think. Right. Something like that. We're
0: gonna get into that because that's common with everybody, the going in the going Yeah, back, yeah. The Which, burning out and then the coming back even right. after. Yeah.
1: So, but that that timeline, I'm sure, about it. Cause yeah. I just remember it being so I mean you can tell that like you guys can't see because this is a podcast, but I'm like hunched over and tensed up here and now just like talking about it again because it was it was a a great experience, but also like just physically and mentally exhausting. And another piece that I had kind of forgotten about, but it was also true, is that was a lead up to one of my first really big ego uh, lessons, which was after a year and a half there, I thought I was some sort of superstar. Like, some, I, cause every day I'm getting emails from people that are like, I love your content. Like, when are you going to go start your own thing? man, this is great, like, oh, this is the best tech website that's ever existed, it's so funny, and it's so smart, and we're doing all this stuff, so after a year and a half, I'm like, well, you know, I've, I've gotten what I can get out of Gawker, like, it's time for me to go on and become this, you know, what, I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but some, some famous writer or something, and I remember after I had quit uh, Gizmodo the first time, like, going out there trying to get work. And I got work like I mean it definitely gave me a career in the media and I was doing some magazine pieces and things like that but I was instantly forgotten by the audience like all of that stuff Um, which I don't I'm not even at the time I wasn't like I was upset by it but I didn't feel like it was unfair it was just a really good lesson of like hey you got too big for your britches like you're now not like the work was important what you created was important that's what people loved like yeah, maybe a few people here and there loved you and appreciated what you did specifically, but never think that just because you're part of something that you created that people love, that that love gets to transfer with you when you go on to do your next thing. You have to rebuild that every time.
0: So is that the lesson of Dethroner, essentially? is I mean, Dethroner actually did
1: fairly well for what it was. So Dethroner was a site that I had created that was essentially a Gawker-style site, but it was going to be about... Men stuff like whatever that would be fashion and specifically trying not to do tech though like it was like outdoor gear just all the other stuff i was interested in that at the time i couldn't really write about on gizmodo and um you know because i did come out of gizmodo at the time uh was when john battell was starting uh federated media and so you know, he he uh, got down on all fours and blew as much smoke up my ass as uh, he could as, as my ass could take, uh, which is a lot, apparently. Um, and, you know, was like, this is going to be huge. Like, this is going to be a big thing. We're going to you know, we're you should expect X amount of dollars a month in revenue. We've already got advertisers lined up. And it was this big golden moment for a lot of us who had worked for other people but not created our own brands. So we're like, okay, well, finally I can create my own thing that will be a business I can own and I can go with. Um, so a couple of things ended up killing uh, Dethroner that weren't my fault and then a couple of things that were my fault. Like the first problem was uh, that ego thing. that I, It was like I thought that I'd have 100,000, 200,000 people just... Come on board. Joel Johnson started a new website. Like, of course I got to read it. It's not how it works. Like, gadget, people that loved the stuff I did writing about gadgets didn't necessarily want to hear me writing about, like, suits or, you know, whatever mid-2000s douchebaggery that I was into. And... Then I also, and we were talking about this probably before we were recording. Like I, it was the first time I'd ever hired somebody personally for one of my businesses, and I, I hired a, a good friend who was a great, a great guy, and he actually did uh, really good work. But it was a wrong decision at the wrong time. I was trying to 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 grow too quickly, and uh, when you're operating out of your own saved money, I didn't have anybody investing in me or anything like that. Um, it just went like it was the. Dumbest thing I could have done because all of a sudden, instead of being able to turn down my expenses to almost zero and just muscle up and get all of the the writing done myself, now I have somebody who's relying on me every month for a few thousand dollars, and you know that meant I got to pay him first before I pay me, and you know handle all this other stuff. Um, That was a big mistake I made. The, The other part of it too is I think. I had worked so hard for, like, a year and a half building Gizmodo, and I thought I had it in me to do it again, and I didn't. Like, I still was trying to, like, live a balanced life while starting Dethroner and going, like, well, I'm only going to write five posts a day, and then I'm going to, you know, take a walk and hang out with my dog and all of this stuff, trying to protect my mental health, which was a reasonable ask, but not where you need to be to start a business and, and, and not where you need to be to, like, really struggle past all the initial pitfalls. And so, you know, that was a mistake. The things that weren't my fault were basically that federated media turned out to be like a huge uh, cluster. I don't know which words we could say on here, but like it was a mess. And John Battelle uh, really, I think, uh, messed up a lot of people's businesses by promising way too much and then hiring a sales staff that was very rapacious and green and would often promise advertisers that you would do things that you wouldn't. Um, And it was a much more sensitive time. I I think a lot of people don't realize how much this has changed in the last decade. But even having advertisers on a blog at all a decade ago was a big, like, people were like, you're a sellout. Like, you can't, how can we trust what you say when you have, like, an advert, an ad on your website?
0: Right. So to to frame it, you you launched Dethroner in 2006. So it's exactly a a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, like... At the same time, we had federated media sales guys who were going out, going to like, I remember Mini was one of the first ones that was going to be a pretty big ad, an ad by uh, the car company. And they were like, we want you to do like a advertisement about what you love about Mini or whatever. And I was like, well, I'm like, I'm happy to write about like, I'm like, I I was like, I'm not going to write, I'll write ad copy if that's what you want me to do that I think will be appropriate for my audience. I'm not going to write something from my voice that says why I love Mini because I've literally never driven one. And, and also, by the way, I'm a car guy and I like have opinions about these things and, and, and also think Minis are great. like Don't have a problem with them, but I'm just not going to do this thing. And this is like literally the week that we were launching something like that and, uh, and then I get pushback that's like, uh, well, actually, we already promised the advertiser that you were going to do it this way. And so if you don't, like this $10,000 ad buy, which is like, of course, a tremendous amount of money to me at the time. Uh, not now. Now, now that $10,000 is a pocket change. But as a business, you know, that was a lot of money uh, for an advertising spend even then. Uh, it went away. And uh, that, that ad deal went away. And then I kind of just ended up getting garbage remnant. And that's like within the first couple of weeks of launching the site. And so all of a sudden this revenue part that I thought was just going to be taken care of by federated media ends up not being taken care of at all because I'm not I'm not playing the game that everybody else is. And funnily uh, funnily enough, Deuce uh, was at XOXO last year and kind of gave a presentation about some of this where she had ridden out Federated for years right, and years. Right. The exact same thing had been happening right from the beginning. And like John Patel's shady as hell. Like I try not to have a lot of uh, burnt bridges <laughs> like I've, I've even forgiven like Calicanus and all of that stuff at least in my heart like Calicanus doesn't care about me in I'm sure <laughs> uh, but like I mean because that yeah yeah speaking of uh, bad people but like whatever you know we all did a lot of uh, fighting trying to get this stuff going but Batel, I think Batel and the promises he made through Federated killed blogging as a small business for a lot of people. I think it grew a lot of small businesses too, but it was the ones that were willing to go more commercial. Now, as a complete sellout, like I work for brands and do advertising, we're like, I don't care anymore. Like, my my, my uh, pride is not that uh, important. But I look back at that stuff 10 years ago, what happened to Boing Boing, what happened to all of the partners uh, that were part of Federated, uh, it could have been something big and it could have been it could have been the wellspring of a ton of really good independent journalism and content and all of this stuff, but because it was a VC-backed company that needed to make money, it just instantly went into like a shady situation. And you know, that, there was a couple of times in my uh, career where working with Patel and working with Federated was like, you know, he lied and like made stuff up or tried to put a lot of the blame on me or the other the other bloggers and creators and people that were involved. And I mean whatever, maybe he's a great guy, like I don't know, but my experiences with him have always been really shady and uh like I'm not out here to try to start a war or anything, but I'm just saying like like I just don't I don't I don't think he I think he talked a big game about wanting to be the the kind of band manager of all of these bloggers and be this, you know, producer that would help create all this content and I think instead he made like a Half baked company that was a real distraction for a lot of people. So,
0: anyway. You mentioned uh, Boing Boing. So, let's, you were a couple years at Boing Boing, so just working with them. Yeah. Like that was like a, some words on that.
1: Uh, yeah. So, Boing Boing. I still love Boing Boing. I'm still,
0: still. Uh, Who doesn't love Boeing Boing? Friends,
1: if not friendly, uh, uh, or, or friendly, if not friends, with most of them. Right. Um, with, well, with all of them. And like, so somewhere around the dethroner time, once it was clear, that dethroner was flailing a little bit. Uh, and I might have gone back to Gawker for a little while. I don't know. I don't, I'm not going I'm not, I'm not to even ever remember how, what I've done for the last decade. But at, at one point, uh, Boing Boing reached out to me and said, hey, we want to expand. We are finally ready to turn Boing Boing into something that's like a little more commercial. They were working with Battelle and Federated and ready to go. And so they were like, we know you helped launch a lot of this stuff at uh, Gawker. Like we're thinking about maybe doing a gadget site and maybe a gaming site and some other stuff. And essentially the idea with Boing Boing was going to try to do a vertical based, you know, thing within the Boing Boing spirit and kind of weirder and quirkier or whatever. Uh, But do something based, uh, not unlike what Weblogs Inc. and Gawker were doing, which was a perfectly good idea, actually. Um, They were maybe a little later than they should have been because Boing Boing used to rule the roost as far as uh, traffic and size and all of that stuff. But uh, you know they were they were ready to go, and so they came to me, and like it was. I think if I'd ever been starstruck by anything from the internet world, it was probably Corey. And- yeah, Corey for sure. Yeah. Corey Doctoro for sure. Um, but just the whole thing. Like I liked I liked all of them. Um, and but it was maybe starstruck isn't exactly it, but it was this moment of feeling when they came to me and said we want you to come on board as, like, a writer on Boy Wing, which hadn't happened. There have been guest vloggers or whatever, but the idea that, like, in some ways, <laughs> and there's been, like, a million, quote, fifth Boingers, you know, this idea <laughs> of, like, this person, and I would never call myself that, yeah. but the idea that, like, okay, cool, like, I, this thing that only three years ago, four years ago, to me was this... Totally unattainable, crazy thing that I've like seen in Wired magazine and I read it every day and it's like and Corey's publishing books and talking about copyright and all this stuff and I'm like, like, and now they want me. And it really did feel like I, and I probably have never said this to them. I might have said it to Pesco before, but it's like like I felt like like that was it. Like I was like, I because it was less about like a job and it was more like I have been selected by Boing Boing to go be part of this. Like I am good enough and I am you know ready to do all this stuff. Um, it ended up being sort of a mess uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly that were business reasons. And there was a point, uh, I think we did that for a couple of years, started Boing Boing Gadgets, helped get off world, uh, off the ground. Uh, probably the best thing I did was hire uh, Rob Biskitza, who uh, I had known from a gaming forum. Uh, hired Rob Viskitsa, who remains like a dear friend and is like a huge asset uh, to, to the Boingers and still works there. And uh, yeah, it was great, but it didn't go, you know, they, they had approached me uh, kind of going, we want to do a gadget site. And I said, I don't really want to do a gadget site, but what are you thinking? And they were like, well, you know, it's more like weird stuff and strange things and fun stuff and hacky stuff. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be like in the the race to get the news up the fastest and whatever. And so we ended up building in Boing Boing Gadgets, especially when I hired Rob and uh, John Brownlee. Uh, another friend, uh, Matt Buchanan, uh, described it as, uh, who was a kid at Gizmodo at the time. He's like, you guys built the perfect gadget blog for gadget bloggers. Like <laughs> like if you were a gadget blogger, you loved Boing Boing Gadgets. It's like gadgets. the
0: comedian's comedian. Yeah,
1: guy. yeah. We were totally like it's you know inside inside baseball, and and we did some really good stuff, really creative writing, really funny. Uh, took some risk and did some thematic things that were that were great, and creatively it was a lot of fun. And we were even making money, like we weren't losing uh, money for boing boing, but we weren't we weren't blowing up. And I think a lot of that is just because. Uh, there was already Gizmodo and, and Gadget. Like right, you yeah, don't need yeah. a third Gadget site. And that's why we were trying to do something else. In retrospect, you know, you can look at something like The Verge that came a, a few years later as something that stepped into a crowded space and did a really good job with it. So maybe, we, maybe there were other ways that we could have done it better and built a better audience. Uh, but we were all just three weirdos that were excited to essentially like be uh, you know, Old Man Murray reborn because we were all huge fans of Old Man Murray. And uh, it, was, it was fine, but there came a point Boing Boing uh, was in real uh, dire financial straits because, once again, federated media had promised them all of this stuff that ended up not happening and ad deals weren't closing. And, you know, at the time, too, the scale was really out of whack. Like, Boing Boing was maybe doing five million uniques a month. Like, I'm kind of pulling that number out of my ass, but I know it was in that neighborhood and, uh, and like Gawker Media Sites were doing 50 million page views a month or whatever, uh, which also I think is high. But <laughs> nevertheless, it's like the, the scale of what you could get uh, and the way online advertising works is that you just need... Like the bigger you are, the more money you're going to make, not just because of more page views, but because you're going to be able to land bigger clients and, and negotiate higher CPM rates. And Boy Moin was struggling and you had four adults that had families and all of this stuff who you know, had real salaries. And, uh, there was this weird thing where some of the federated people were just being real dumb. And I kind of threw a temper tantrum, which I probably shouldn't have thrown, uh, and told the federated people to go piss up a rope. And then Battelle, like, uh, we had like a a team meeting because it was a very huggy feeling kind of place, huggy feely kind of place. and. Mattel was like, you know, this whole thing has been a disappointment, like you were hired to create a Gizmodo and you, you know, like, no, that was specifically what we said we weren't doing, like, that's, you're so wrong. Uh, and I walked and I was just like, you know, like, screw this, this is dumb. Um, I had a little bit of equity that they gave me a little bit of money for. And uh, I walked away, and <laughs> this is a couple of times I've done this, uh, which is not uh, the greatest thing in the world, but where I've kind of, I've thrown a timber tantrum and been like, I'm, I'm out of here. And when I leave, because my salary is no longer having to be paid, it like frees up money for people to be able to go. So in that instance, I actually ended up uh, just for the the moment. Like I think I kind of helped by leaving because it helped remove you know the my salary and all the cash flow stuff around around me. And then uh, Rob took over and did the rest of it and has had a great career there and done a lot of really good uh, really good stuff. But it was heartbreaking because it was like. I had thought that I was going to, I thought that I was going to be part of that site and that group of people for like the rest of my life. And the awkwardness of how it ended, you know, it took a few years to kind of repair some of those relationships. And I'm certainly like, I don't talk to, I actually talk to Jenny quite a bit still, but like, I don't talk to everybody as much as I did then, which is normal and fine. But uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a tough one. Cause I really kind of thought like, this is... This is where I'm going to be. Like, this is the perfect balance of being able to do what I want creatively, uh, make money, but not have to work 18 hour days to keep it alive. And I also just circumstantial, circumstantially had met a girl and moved to Oregon uh, to be with her and thought I was going to marry her, and then that didn't work out. So I'm like sitting in a house in Eugene, Oregon, uh, like, not. <laughs> like without a job and no friends and just no girlfriend and just hanging out and like trying to figure out what I was gonna do so I spent a couple of months uh, in the backyard getting drunk and hanging out with my dog and then was like uh, ended up kind of pointing myself back towards New York and Gawker and all of that stuff and did another round
0: so that's interesting I can see why you would want to go back but why can everyone always go back to gawker does does Nick not Hold grudges. Is Only a... certain
1: people can go back. Okay. So, and the way it works is it has nothing to do with talent. It has nothing to do with anything else. Uh, the trick, the reason I made it as long as I did in Gawker is because I always quit before I got fired. That's mm. all it comes down to. Uh, the people, Nick is a bad manager um, and a really bad sense of talent. Like, he he, he, he won't nurture anybody, right? Um, any of the kind of leadership and growth and the really great uh environment for writers that Gawker had uh, was largely due to people like Corey and other people that over the years that created and me that created that environment for, for people. And so what will always happen is if you work at Gawker and why it made it such a terrifying place to work is that at some point the ISR on will like point down at you and be like, why aren't you doing what you, you know, this new idea? And so for a long time, for years, the way you re- you kept alive in Gawker was that you kept your head down. And then right when it looked like Nick might decide to spend a week paying attention to what you do after he's ignored it for a year and a half, that's when you leave, right? <laughs> or you go threaten to leave or you get another job. And then it'll be like, oh no, like you, we lost you. We, you're always welcome back. We're going to come mm-hmm, get you back. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what happened for me, right? It's like every time that things would... And it wasn't completely calculated because a lot of times it was uh, wedded to me being stressed out or whatever. But the way you kept alive and the way I kept alive is that I would just go do something else. And it so happened that I was actually also leveling up my abilities and skills and career. Like I went to Wired for a while and helped them start their blog or expand their blog network. Uh, I had done some freelance writing and really improved my ability as, as a reporter and as a, as a writer. So every time I came back, Gawker had gotten bigger and had a new set of challenges, but I had also kind of gone out and got more experience that made me more suited for that next suite of challenges. Uh, you know, the, the thing that's a bummer about it is, of course, uh, that you shouldn't have had to have lead. You shouldn't have had to be playing that stupid uh, push me pull you kind of game uh, with Denton about trying to always have him chasing you instead of uh, worrying about falling out of his his good graces. And then, uh, you know, of course, the financial and uh, money part of things, which is like now all pretty much moot. Like, I guess some people will still get a little bit of money through the bankruptcy, but you know, there was certainly an idea there for a while that, you know, we we could we were building a company that was going to be worth a billion dollars or was going to be worth a bunch of money. And uh, as soon as it became clear that the stock options and all of the plans for how Gawker was going to work were a complete sham and a complete shit show. Uh, you know, that dream for a lot of people went away. And for me specifically, it freed me up to be able to quit and go try to do other things. So being able, being always the one that would leave always meant that Nick was receptive to me coming back when he would do it. And and he was the same way for other people. But what would happen that was bad is like, uh, you would have somebody that would run a site for years. And then one day Nick would decide they weren't capable or qualified to do it. And, that was it and they would be fired with no, you know, and I, I had a hand in some of that stuff too. I fired some of those people largely cause, uh, you know, Nick told me to do it and I was definitely his ax man for a while. And like it, it sucked because there, you never knew when that switch was going to happen. And so I said that to people for years, it's like the best thing you can do for your career at Gawker is to go somewhere else and just get out and like be, be the one that got away because you'll be able to come back again, usually with a promotion or more money. Um, and I wrote that one out until it until it didn 't work until I finally uh didn 't quit soon enough and got uh got
0: fired instead so can i, I there 's one more thing I want to touch on from your time at Gawker, which is the kinja that we know of today the the, the comment system or the whole software system because mm-hmm. weren 't you it's a c m s right yeah. so you were around for that whole rollout and were heavily involved in that right
1: yeah uh to to a certain degree i, mean, okay. I didn't
0: so what is um is it he did denton never really give up the dream that this would be more than just a bunch of blogs this could also be a technology company what what was the the goal of kinja and and what what you were you guys were trying to achieve i mean in my most pessimistic or
1: aggressive mode i would say that like kinja was supposed to be everything and that was why it never was good at being anything um I think that the main idea that it had boiled down to is that it was going to be something along the lines of like a medium, somewhere between medium and Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. It's that uh, it was a place where publishers could go to put their um, content with a nice CMS with decent designs uh, and commenting systems with vetted commenters and all of this stuff. And there was a whole plan for uh, an economy around the back of it uh, that uh, was going to be uh, like ways that you could basically an ad exchange that was built into it so that both small and large publishers could move traffic around and move money around and all this stuff. But you know, it never got off the drawing board uh, or, or launched properly, I, I should say, because it never, it was never finished, right? Like there was never a point where the idea uh, and the design of the thing could stop, could could cohere long enough to let developers build the thing, you know? And that's, the, the thing that happened with Kinja is that Nick's hyper reactive and waffly mind works pretty well in media because, you know, you can walk up to somebody and say, actually stop writing this kind of feature and write this kind of feature, or you should do a story about X and not Y. And it's fine. You do it, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. It's very low cost to execute and very low uh, penalties if it doesn't succeed. It does not work in a multi-million user software platform. Like You have to know what you're building up front and you have to be able to build and execute a roadmap for each one of those steps as you go through. So in 2014, the year I came back as executive editor, I spent almost as much time uh, trying to guide Kinja's development and the product development. And there were obviously the tech team and, and other people did the actual work. Like I don't want to overstate you know, what I was involved in. But a lot of what I was doing was just trying to go, okay, this vision that you have for what we can build is not a bad vision, but we can't, we can't look at what the feature set is supposed to be at the end and then pick and choose certain pieces of that and build that first. Mm. We, have to, we have to build the feature set for what the, the, the audience or the customer, in this case, wants, which is different, and we were trying to serve them all at once, right? So it was like, one day it would be about trying to get Time Inc. to move all of their publishing over to Kinja, so we're gonna promise them all of these like image features and great editing tools and collaborative editing and all of this stuff. And then the next day it would be like, but actually, who cares about publishers because it's really all about commoners and amateur sleuths are going to put gossip on the internet and they're going to be rewarded for that. So you build a whole system for that. And it was just, it's like, you know, it's just like trying to walk towards a mountain, but every time you see another tree, you walk towards that tree and then you walk to this tree over here and there's just this zigzag back and forth. And... You know the irony is it like it ended up Kendo was not and still is not a bad CMS. It's pretty good as far as that as far as that goes. And the performance stuff for what what the tech teams did uh, with uh, very very limited resources, they did great work. You know both the, the New York and the Hungarian tech teams. They made a lot of they made a lot of uh, they served a lot of web pages on not a lot of hardware for a long time. And there was times where it. Did not work well. But towards the end, they they the last few years, they've really done well. But um, yeah, Kinja, Kinja was a good idea. And like uh, Kinja, it was late, first of all. It was trying to do, it was highly reactive towards Facebook. Like Nick was so terrified of Facebook that Facebook was going to be the only arbiter of traffic, uh, which it kind of is. But also, what can you do about that? You know, you don't, <laughs> it's like if you see a steamroller coming towards your house, you don't like build another steamroller. You know, you're like, ah, the steamroller's coming. Like, I know what to do. Like, I'll try to build up a steamroller that's already much bigger. And how? Ha- I, I I'll, let me just get out of this <laughs> metaphor as soon as I can. Uh, but you know, the the ideas were fine. Unfortunately, it got to a point where you know it didn't. Doesn't listen to people. He's not a very rational person. He's very like you know whips around on a lot of these ideas. And again, editorially that can that can be an asset, but on a product standpoint, it wasn't. And so he would just chew through these poor engineers and designers who would try to build out roadmaps of what we were building and come up with a product statement and all of these things and, and treat it like real product development. And of course go around at every cocktail party and be like, oh, we're really more of a technology company than an editorial company. And it's like, okay, well no, not you don't you don't even know what a technology company does or how it functions. I at least have an inkling of what that is, but fine. Um, but then uh, after a long weekend, uh, would come back and be like, I've actually cracked the whole thing. We're gonna do a totally new thing for three months and then We'll launch it and it'll be half-baked and the users will revolt and none of the other publishers will like it. And then, oh, by the way, we've decided we're not going to really focus on other publishers. So all these people that we've told for months, we're going to pay them and get them in our ad network. Like, that's not happening anymore. And, oh, actually, we're really only going to focus on blogging again and we're not a technology company. And then, you know, it's like there was – if we would have just had a plan, which we did have a plan at one point that made a lot of sense to me, and we would have stayed on that roadmap, and if he would have gotten out of the way and just let people – Build out those things; uh, it would have it would have done okay. I, I still, you know, it wouldn't have been a Facebook or whatever, but it would have been a nice publishing platform that could have done could have answered some of the independent publishing questions that Federated had not answered back in the past. Like that, I was focused in the first six months of 2014 on trying to build a strategy around how do I get amateur bloggers enough money that they can subsidize. Blogging as a lifestyle, like how do we recreate the the marketplace of 2016 in a platform in 2014 mm-hmm. to allow people to create that sort of niche content and maybe not get rich, but maybe make sixty thousand dollars or you know make a living a living wage. And you know by the end of 2014, we were off in a completely different direction. You know chasing chasing our tails. And so yeah, I mean the the Kindle platform was not a bad idea, but there's so many lessons that could be learned uh, for both product people and publishing people about having the greatest, shiniest idea in the world doesn't work if you're not a good project manager and and manager of developers. And it certainly doesn't work. Uh, A viable business plan is not saying, we're gonna do what these people over here have already done, but better. Like, that's not a plan. You have to figure out, or even if that is your 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 pole star, you have to figure out the steps that will get you there, and who the audience and customer is for each one of those steps. And that never happened. Um, and then Hulk Hogan happened, and Gabergate happened, and that was that. So, and then you know the company is not extant you
0: know. in any form at this point. Well, let's let's wrap up with some of these sort of larger questions, um, and I want to start by going back to. Everybody always talks about the the voice that Gawker as a organization created. Yeah. But what you described to me was that it's not like Nick Denton comes down and says, "I'm going to bring like a, a Fleet Street mentality, and we're going to." This is what. Uh, Gawker Media is going to be about. So,
1: it, <laughs> I mean, he probably did literally say we're going to bring a Fleet Street mentality, and like most of us that worked there, didn't know what that meant, <laughs> so we just did whatever. we So, were exactly.
0: Do. So, in your estimation, where did that voice that people so famously ascribe to Gawker come from? Was it just from the people, just organically?
1: I think. I think uh, Liz and Corey, and and like Liz's voice was not as goofy or whatever, but there was. Uh, Tone and choice of tone, you know, she she had a tone and she had a voice. I think was, but but Corey obviously huge influence. Um, and you know, I will uh, uh, like. I'm not a very modest person, and so I don't know where my layers of false modesty are at. But the one thing uh, that I do comfortably take credit for is bringing that voice, that funny, irreverent, uh, trying to puncture through a lot of bullshit voice. Out of worlds that it had already existed, like I certainly wasn't the one that came up with the voice, but was the first one to really bring that to tech, and whatever. If it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else. Like I don't want to overstate it, but I did. I do think that my I I don't actually feel like I emulated Corey a lot, so much as like Corey and I f- find each other funny, and he was a huge guide and mentor. Like don't get me wrong, but but really more as an actual professional. Prose writer, not like a funny blogger person uh and uh yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of where it came from, but a lot of it too was you know, I don't think like the Deadspin voice came from from me like I don't think it came from corey it, it, it but what happened was once it was clear that having these voices or having voices was gonna be okay in commercial blogging uh and that we didn't have to sound like a newswire. Uh, that opened up the space for people that had their own voices to come on board and do their own thing. So I never really feel like there's a gawker voice. I feel like all the sites and all the writers all have quite a, there's a a big range of, of voices there, but it's the fact that we were allowed to have a voice at all is the unique part. And that part is so... Like it's not important, so I don't want to overstate it. Like ultimately, it's not that important of a thing. But if you look at like headlines in the Times today, or you look at uh, any major news organization and the way they approach news, for better or for worse, is a lot more colloquial and a lot more chatty than it ever used to be. And I think that happens. You know, you can go read newspapers from a hundred years ago, and the headlines were chatty for their day. But what was once chatty becomes formal after generations move through it, and it. But we did that. Like we were there at that time that pushed a lot of that voice through. And the fact that you could be snarky and mean, but also be talking about real and serious and important issues was like Gawker people should all take like a, a big a big portion of the credit, if, if not you know if not all of it.
0: What about um, gadget blogging itself? Like, was there a golden age? of gadget blogging. Like, cause there was that period of time when, yes, your first smartphone could literally change your life. Yeah. Right. And there was that period of time when there were new gadgets and there were, there were interesting things going on in gadgets every day, every mm-hmm. month. Like, is that, is that over? Was that just an accident of history? Like, I a, mean,
1: no, it's not over. It's just, this, this stuff comes in cycles and waves. I mean, I, I actually think we're in a, we're in a minor <laughs> lull right now, but all of the VR and AR stuff is super interesting. Uh, you know, the technology continues to move along. I do think for my generation of gadget bonkers, uh you can look at the whole thing in two eras. There's pre-iPhone and post-iPhone. And, um, you know, when I remember writing about iPhone rumors for years, uh, because when I started, when I took over Gizmodo, uh, people were still questioning whether the iPod was going to be a success or not. Like I would write about iPod and and being that PC kid that was always thought Apple products were stupid. Um, I remember getting my first iPod uh, instead of, because I'd had MP3 players before, but I remember getting an iPod for Christmas one year and I was like, I like this. And I think I understand why other people like normal non-nerds are going to like this. And, and I was writing pieces like that on Gizmodo going, hey, I, you know, I went out on the subway and I see all these people with white earbuds.
0: And like, I remember I was living in New York at that time, like 2003, yeah. and, and going back to Michigan and being like, no, listen, everybody has yeah. iPods. And
1: I was writing this stuff on Gizmodo and people would write it. We didn't even have comments or anything at the time, but people would write back into me and be like, here's why the you know, Rio or the you know, iRiver X9 Og Vorbis player. You know? And I was like, look, man, I think... It doesn't matter. Like I think, I think like this thing, like this user experience thing, and a branding and a coolness thing is a, is a factor. And I and I only say it that way because like now we look at it as like duh, like of course right, it is. Right. But like ten, eleven years ago, like that was not the case. And so you know, I watched, and I even watched. I remember putting up stories, and this is maybe more aptly than what you're asking, but I remember putting up stories towards the end of my tenure that were like. You know, sales figures came out today that iPod has 96% of the MP3 player market and still getting emails from people that are like, here's why the iPod sucks,
0: DRM, I'm all... And I was like... Well, and that also makes me think of the era of right after the iPhone. Right. When it's, okay, is Android ever going to... Is there going to be a phone that's going to be better yeah. than, or equal to the iPhone? So though that period of time... So, also, so the,
1: the, the way those two eras pivot around the iPhone, just to get back to that, I guess, is like... You know, you have the iPod. Everybody remained skeptical of the iPod, even while it was a billion-dollar business. Like, it was huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, the, all these, like, online tech nerds or whatever. And then you have all these people talking about what smartphone and Windows CE and Palm and all this stuff that was, you know, proper to get. We were doing, like, proto wire cutter kind of stuff. And like, here's the phone we would suggest. This Nokia smartphone or whatever. And... Um, or Nokia, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, but at the time, the iPhone loomed as this mythical thing... And you would get occasional rumors about it, but it wasn't like, you, rumors weren't even a thing. And then the first iPhone kind of comes like a, you know, like a meteor out of the sky. Like the, I remember the day it happened. I actually was working for Wired when it happened. Uh, and I was at CES, not at the Apple keynote. And Denton, of all people, uh, IM'd me. And he was like, do you see it? Did you see it? And I like hadn't seen it. I was like, what oh yeah, I heard they're like coming out with their phone, right? Yeah, Is this yeah. happening today? And he's like, you have to go see it. Uh, Denton for all his faults, like definitely has a good, good nose for dumb, uh, gadgets. Like he, he, he's into it. And, uh, like, and I remember at that point, that's when the game changed because all of these things that we had, like a gadget blog was about what's the best camera, like DSLRs were getting cheap and popular. Uh, what's the best MP3 player? What's the, all these categories that of course were in one gadget now, So that, to a certain extent, was an end of an era because now all of a sudden you can see it if you're smart, or just open to the obvious, that like point and shoot cameras and MP three players and portable video players and all these things that were portable GPS, yeah, right, are all going to go into this middle section. And so then you so you got a few good years, a couple years of like documenting that happening, right? Like I remember writing prognosticating pieces right when it came out that were like like, they're going to put other software on this. It's going to replace GPS units and all that, you know. It's, like it's mm-hmm. stuff that is so obvious now. But at the time, people were like, there's no way it'll ever be powerful enough or people want a specialized gadget or whatever. So you got a couple of years after the iPhone came out of waiting for it to really become the the Jesus phone that it became. And then you got a kind of sweet bit of Apple rumor, thing that ultimately Gizmodo uh, won with the iPhone 4, right. uh, which I had nothing to do with. Like, I don't want to take any credit. I, was, I technically was working there as an editor at large at the time, but that was all Brian uh, Lamb and mm-hmm. Jason Chen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And like, to me, that was kind of the, the end of another era where it's like somebody, a gadget blog actually beat Apple at its own game, yeah. and then uh, Apple shuts them out because it was... Completely mishandled by.
0: You know what? You're the, the, so right about that. That because that was also the last time. Like, if if the new iPhone design leaked today, it wouldn't be as big a deal. No. Remember what a big deal that was. It was on national
1: news. Yeah, like it yeah. was huge. It also had a good story around it, like an right. engineer leaving it in a bar and all of that stuff. Which, like, I ended up actually uh, talking to him uh, in person a few years later. Like, just getting his story. Which super super nice guy. Could be a lot more. Uh, bitter and mm-hmm. is not but still 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 working at Apple right? still working at Apple yeah. it, or was a year and a half ago or whenever yeah. it was that I talked to him but uh, you know that was kind of an end of an era too because uh, that actually and this is a whole nother set of stuff that I'm honestly not the one to talk to about but you know there was my era of Gizmodo uh, and early Gawker stuff where I was writing a lot and then after you know the first couple of years I was really more editing and you know managing and doing a lot of other stuff that's that era of of Brian Lamb's uh you know murderers row of gadget bloggers uh and then it really was only like that was only about a year and a half too that group of people what that Brian had brought in uh are still very influential in media in general right like Frucci and Mm -hmm. John uh, Herman, John Mahoney, uh, Buchanan, and weirdly, like a lot of those guys, Christmas scary. Like, there's so many guys that came through that organization uh, for that couple of year period. Biddle, you know, Sam right, Biddle yeah, came through yeah. there. My my worst enemy uh, <laughs> and best PlayStation friend. Um, and and weirdly, like that's actually my f- group of friends now. Like that group of Gizmodo people. Like we all, even though we didn't really work together as much, like that was a very influential group of people too. That is super uh i think it's known but sometimes for for media people obviously media people are the only people that would actually care about this i don't want to overstate it but uh if you go look at who worked at gizmodo in that period of time uh they're still mostly all working in media and either ran or started a lot of very interesting stuff and i feel like that was the one era of uh like, a lot of Gawker.com writers and other website writers uh, went on to work in other media and kind of, you know, Gawker.com is always where the writer's writers lived or whatever. But that era of Gizmodo, I feel like, doesn't get enough appreciation that there was a hugely influential uh, group of people that now work, you know, at the New York Times and it, at, at Eater.com. So, you know, maybe Matt's <laughs> fallen from greats. but he used to work at the New Yorker. No, his job is great now. Uh, but that was a really strong group of people uh, that have their own fun stories and crazy things. But you'll have to get one hammer. Yeah. Somebody else in here to talk about that.
0: Eventually, everybody. Uh, um, all right. Last, very last one because you've been super generous and also we need to defrost. I yeah, I'm it.
1: freezing.
0: All right. Very last one. Uh, you, you've literally been around through this professional blogging industry almost from the very beginning. I'm sure you can remember when getting on Dig was the big thing to go after or whatever. Now, we've touched on it a bit in this age of Facebook silos of traffic and things like that. Can you still launch a successful independent blog and exist immune to the whims of of Facebook changing their algorithm and things Um, like
1: that? I think that the era of blogs being miniature versions of media companies and functioning that way is over. Uh, I, so I do a lot of strategy consulting, uh, and, uh, and like PR consulting and all this stuff with my business. Um, now that's how I make a living. And I do a lot of stuff where I actually do, I'd say at least half of the business strategy consulting I do is free, right? Because it's somebody getting off the ground. And I always say like, when you're a millionaire, mm-hmm. come hire me to go do something else. But it's mm-hmm. like, this is, I can tell you everything I know in an hour. Let's just do that. But the first thing that I say to people now on any of these things, and especially publishing uh, and, and uh, online media, is like it's just like step one, where's your revenue? Like step two, expect to take a lot longer to create content than you think it does. Step three, where's your next set of revenue? Like, and it's so funny because I, I can see dumb, shaggy-haired me 15 years ago saying this stuff and being like, what a sellout. But like, I don't care now. I'm like, this is how it works. Like, if you want to run a business and you want it to sustain you and to run for a long time, revenue is, I mean, this is all basic stuff, but writers don't think about this, right? So I think in this era, I think you can still do things and launch things, but I think that you have to have revenue streams that are not advertising based or certainly not display advertising based because one, Facebook doesn't just send and route traffic, like they also kind of, they steal traffic, right? Like, and I don't mean that in a, they steal traffic by design, not like in a malicious way, but uh, if you are putting your content up and you need a, a certain amount of people to read your site every day, because getting a hit on one story is worthless. It actually tends to cost you money as opposed to make you money. You need a consistent audience. And Facebook now has, diversified or, or or not diverse, like diluted Mm -hmm. that, that audience in such a way that it's really hard for you to build it because who goes to individual websites anymore? Like, that's almost
0: what I'm asking. Is that, is that over? I
1: think it's basically over. I mean, I certainly, I've had people in the last couple of years hire me or try to hire me to consult on their new media brands. And I've sat down with them and, you know, obviously not going to say, say who, but like, uh, and I've sat down with them and been like, this is a bad business. Like you, like my advice to you as a strategist is <laughs> don't, don't do this. Don't pay me money. Like don't. And it's, it's still this thing that's very sounds very appealing to people. And everybody always thinks that they can come up with the better version, right? Uh, because there's something that happens in people's heads when they read a lot of content that they think they can make good content. And that may be true, but then you have to make that good content every day. For years and build up an audience, and you can never quit. Like you just have to go, 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 go. And you know some of the some of the businesses that I operate now, like the Nightlight, which is our baby gear site, uh, was designed specifically to be a business where we didn't have to update it every day. Like we could update our stuff every few months and make sure it was current and fresh, but it could be a guide. And that's a perfectly tidy little business, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. But the two things that I learned from that were one, it still took two years and tens of thousands of dollars for me to get that thing off the ground. Uh, I only just recently came back in the black on my investment on that because it's really hard to build an audience when you're not doing daily content, but it's really easy to blow a shitload of money if you are doing daily content. So I think if any of those plays for independent, independent publishers are basically done. And it's not just Facebook, it's also the VC... Uh, backed nature of companies like Vox and BuzzFeed, uh, both of which I think are fine. Like in what, in what way? But, well, okay, they're sitting on piles of money. Right. And whether they're profitable or not, and they have tended to be profitable, they were able to reach scale without worrying about having to make mm. quarterly revenue. Okay. And there's only so much audience out there. There really is. Like... Uh, you know, granted, there's things like international and things that other people aren't into. But really, there's only so many people reading things online. And then there's a smaller subset of people that are clicking ads and, you know, all of, all of that stuff. And what happened in, with, in the BuzzFeed and Vox era is that they had a couple hundred million dollars between them to, to get off the ground. And they went out and they sucked up all that traffic. And they built good businesses around it. And, like, good on them. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. mad at them mm-hmm. about it. But it means that for you, the individual publisher, you're actually financially almost certainly better off just going and getting a nine to five job with one of those bigger publishers and just being a columnist than trying to run your own business. The only business is, you know, Brian started Wirecutter and Wirecutter did well, but Wirecutter is not an advertising based business. You won't find advertising on it, right. it's an affiliate based right, business, right. Um, as is Nightlight. You know, it's like that's. Specifically, I I won't launch anything. I won't build any businesses that are advertising based at this point because I think the lesson of the last Facebook in the last few years and Google obviously as well is that uh, advertising is fickle and it's a bad thing to build a business on. And so if you are at scale, if you are a Conde Nast or a Hearst, you're still bleeding money. You're still probably dying, but you're dying uh, at a slower pace. If you're Yahoo, you just went down a peg. You know, you went from a, however big, $150 billion company to a $5 billion company that will be smashed in with AOL, another company that used to be big. And all of those companies, and and hilariously, what those companies sell for now and have any value for is for their ad tech. It's not even for their content, right? So, the advertising game is won. Google and Facebook largely won it. Uh, you know, Apple even tried to get in on that and just bungled it. Um, so don't be that guy that's going to go out or, or woman, you know, I don't mean I mean that der- derisively of men not, not in a positive sense uh, So and my main advice to everybody besides hammering in that like, where's your revenue, where's your revenue where's your revenue is just be very Catholic about where you think your revenue can come from and there is still, I think it's still a great time to launch a business online, I think there's plenty of opportunities that are out there uh, if you hustle and you work ridiculous hours and you have an an unhealthy work-life balance, like you might be able to pull it off and run that out for a few years and do it and then turn that into a business, but don't do it in publishing. Like publishing I think is mostly gone because publishing is turned into technology. And like once something, once a market is technology, how are you going to beat, how are you going to beat the system? And we're not even into the point where like AIs are writing a lot of the copy. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously there, some of that is already happening, but you know, what happens in 10 years from now when all those BuzzFeed videos uh, tasty overhead shots of, you know, how you cook something are literally just rendered on a computer algorithmically based on, like, what they think is a great new combination or what keywords have shown up or what their data they got from Whole Foods have shown Or them, even right?
0: on the fly based on, on searches. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like all of these things in the content world and
1: my very in, – in, I technically have only really worked in media for a little over a decade. Yeah, yeah. In that decade, I have seen it go from like I've seen whole industries collapse and fall and and it's super fascinating, but I also as a person that is trying to create a life for me and my family, like I'm not spending any more time in in startup media publishing. Like I still do a lot of consulting in media and I and I try to help uh, and I think I do often help people build businesses. But again, I'll often get hired uh, with somebody who will still come to me and be like, we think we might want a gadget website. Can you help us with that? And I say to them straight up, uh, I'll help you figure out a strategy. And it may involve, like, writing about technology. Maybe it won't. But, like, the first thing we have to do is sit down and look at your business model. Like, that's... I refuse... Well, I don't want to be too cocky. Like, that's, I refuse to do it. I mean, whatever. If somebody pays me, sometimes I'll just take the, the job. But I, I, by and large, do tell people, I can't help you in a way that will be sustainable and, and give you success if you don't let me look at what your business model and how your revenue is going to work. Because if you're launching a website today that's based on display advertising or even, you know, like sponsored content or any of that stuff, it may even work today for a year or two, but it's like... The trend is very clear where it's going. So, so yeah, I mean, that's sorry, that's a long-winded way to say it, but uh, no, I don't think that you can be an independent publisher. Certainly not an independent publisher that has, like, 6 to 12 employees. You might be able to eke out a living for yourself and have a good a good living. Uh, you know, there's still the Grubers out mm-hmm. there that are kind of, you know, chugging along, but we'll never. there's never going to be a Gruber... Incorporated, right, right like Gruber right. Media. Like, right. uh, there's never going to be a, you know, Merlin Man. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking about all these Mac guys. Yeah, Except yeah. I guess I'm a fan. I like these guys, and I and I, like think they could do well.
0: Like Ben Thompson would be a Ben Thompson yeah. is a,
1: right. It's like you can still be a pundit, I guess, and figure out ways to make that work between Patreon and selling T-shirts and you know, doing Amazon affiliates or whatever. You can cobble together a nice little business for yourself, but it doesn't scale. It's yeah. never going to be something that's going to get you to a point where you can have a dozen people. And the people that do it, I mean, God bless them, they're still out there, but they it's the Atlas Obscuras and the places that kind of find a niche that makes a lot of sense often take a little bit of investment to give them a runway to build up their audience to get to a certain scale. But the days, I'm not sure the days of having... 50,000 readers a month, uh, and that's your living, were ever real. I think there were only just these little peaks of foam in the static that would mm. occasionally come through, but, mm. but the, the idea of it is, the idea of like the, the solo blogger out there making the money is not very viable, and certainly not if you're not willing to be highly adaptable, you know? You can be a Casey Neistat who will like, you know, he's my age or older, and you know it's still out there like oh snapchat okay i'll just start making my content there and and like that's how he builds his business but that's how you have to do it you yeah. have to move around to where the audience du jour is um yeah i don't know i feel like i could yeah talk about that a lot more but i don't know how useful that is
0: you said you said my age but you're forgetting it's literally our age um oh right <laughs> so i don't want to
1: make you feel old
0: i uh Let's let's wrap this. Up. I I can personally vouch for Nightlight uh, as a young, Nightlight's great. I'm carrot. super proud of it. Like, Do you want to plug uh, the consultancy, or are you not ready to? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, the Nightlight the, the Nightlight right, dot sorry. com. Sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> No, no, no. Just, just get uh, a, your, a, a wire get cutter. Get it right. a It's a baby
1: wire. website. It's super important
0: to get everything right. Like wire cutter, but for baby shit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not not nearly as...
1: Uh, I would say in depth as far as the amount of work we do per guide, but we only have like 30 some odd guides. Uh, but I love the nightlight. And the nightlight... Uh, it's I'm honestly probably the best, fully, most fully realized thing I've ever done. And it also, I thought, was going to be a lot more successful than it is, but we've gotten it to a point where... Everybody that reads it loves it. I feel really confident in the content that's up there. I think we have the, the best baby content for, for you know baby gear, strollers, uh, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's self sustaining now, which is awesome. So even though it didn't, I'm not on an island, <laughs> on a private island somewhere, You're not surfing every day. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, it, it's. It's a good site. So yeah, uh, the nightlight.com, check it out. Like, uh, If you have a baby and need to buy some stuff for the baby, we will give you a lot to think about at the very least. Um, and then, yeah, the, 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 the pan company for all of the other uh, work uh, and people that work with me is called Special Circumstances. We're at uh, scircumstances.com. Uh, uh, probably a very confusing name, but that's, that's, that's what I'm working with. Uh, and yeah, we're a strategy and consulting group. It's, uh, I'm in on everything. It's, it's definitely largely me, but we have uh, a few people that, uh, we work with on different projects and that I bring in and it's going really well. Like it's really, really awesome. Um, so we've got some big, big fortune 10 companies that I'm working with and we've got some startups uh, and we've got some real, uh, world like makerspace stuff that is still happening. And it's, It's honestly great, like it's going really, really well. Um, And as I was talking to you uh, about earlier before we started recording, now I'm in a point where I'm trying to use all of these things I learned over the last decade about building a business and expanding and all of this advice I give to other people about how to build these businesses to do that with special circumstances where I can build uh, a company that does the work that I wanna see exist in the world uh, and support other people and have other employees and have a real kind of familial company uh, without making those decisions too quickly and running it into the ground. So it's been, uh, we're already ahead of where I thought we would be and we already have bigger clients than I ever thought uh, that we would have at this point. Uh, but I'm still trying to be very cautious and step by step and go through. However, uh, funnily enough, uh, when you do business that isn't online internet media business, uh, it's often a lot easier because there's more money out there and it's not, it's hard to, uh, it's not as hard to make, make your bills. So, uh, yeah, so if you're looking for advice or PR consulting or uh, business strategy or very soon uh, vehicles, which is actually the other random part of this business that we're going to start trying to do uh, late this year, uh, come check us out, but that's a brand that's really—I mean—that brand exists because you need a brand and you need to be a company to be real. Uh, but you can also hit me up. And I was, was going to say, just look talk. for Joel. Yeah, I mean, you know, I—I I don't want to be—I don't know—I don't know—I don't know how to calibrate how much cockiness and artifice to talk about when you're trying to promote a business like this because we actually it's not a it's not a brand that's designed to like be known by everybody it's supposed to be a word of mouth brand yeah uh but and i do have now at my disposal tons of really smart people and have spun up pretty big teams to go work on projects uh but at the end of the day you're still going to be coming to me so uh
0: yeah so you heard it here find joel johnson because to paraphrase uh, Paula paul he is as always Thanks, Joel. All right. Thanks for having me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at Brian mcc. Thanks for listening.